0: From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News.
1: Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA Executive Producer Steve Reddish. Welcome Cindy and Steve. Thank you.
2: Thanks for having us again.
1: Well, here are the issues. President Joe Biden called for evidence to be gathered to put Russian leader Vladimir Putin on trial for war crimes related to his nation's invasion of Ukraine. Biden called Putin a war criminal on the heels of reports of mass killings of civilians by Russian-controlled troops in the town of Bucha. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky called for a Nuremberg-style tribunal to investigate and prosecute Russian war crimes. Zelensky's appearance before the U.N. Security Council follows Ukrainian claims that at least 300 civilians were tortured and killed in Bucha by Russian troops. Zelensky described the aftermath, which he said he saw firsthand as a genocide and accused Russia of war crimes. The Ukrainian leader's remarks came before a U.S.-led proposal to suspend Russia from the U.N. Human Rights Council. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield introduced the proposal to the Security Council. EU diplomats are considering a ban on Russian coal, ceasing transactions with four key banks and banning many Russian ships from EU ports. The U.S. is also set to impose additional sanctions against Russia. NATO allies are stepping up their support for Ukraine's right to defend itself, Hungary's authoritarian leader and longtime Russian ally, Viktor Orban, clinched a fourth consecutive term in power after a landslide election win that he touted as a rebuke of liberalism, the EU and Ukraine's president. And here in the U.S., former President Barack Obama appeared alongside President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris to deliver remarks on the Affordable Care Act and lowering health care costs for families. Obama's appearance comes at a time when Biden is struggling in the polls in the face of persistent inflation and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has caused ripple effects throughout the world. President Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, is closer to becoming the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court. The panel split 11-11 on Jackson's nomination with all Democrats in support and all Republicans against. The deadlock forced Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to invoke special procedures to advance Jackson's nomination. Those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, Cindy, the Russian invasion sparked renewed global outrage as horrific images emerged of bodies scattered across the streets. So Russia says these images are fake. What is being
0: done to prove that these atrocities are actually happening? Well, VOA was among the teams of journalists who were able to go to Bucha this week actually to speak to survivors, eyewitnesses of these atrocities. So, you know, Russia's ambassador to the United Nations saying there are no witnesses to this is simply not true because journalists, you know, from all kinds of outlets went and human rights agencies went and saw these bodies, saw people, including children, with their hands tied behind their back, shot people tortured, children raped. I mean, these are shocking images that are really galvanizing the world, that this is is just something that, as Biden had said and was criticized before, this man basically can't stay in power. This just can't go on. And Ukrainian President Zelensky has cautioned that it's not just Bucha. He says as Russian forces retreat from other areas and Ukrainian forces and outsiders are able to get to these towns, we're gonna be seeing more of these same images. And in the city of Mariupol, which has just been pounded and pounded for weeks now, we are hearing reports that Russians are using uh, mobile crematoriums to destroy evidence to burn the corpses of thousands of people who have been killed. And this is a very worrisome thing that they're trying to erase. They, They see that this global outrage over Bucha and they may be trying to erase that in Mariupol.
2: One of the other points of evidence against Vladimir Putin's claim that these bodies and the massacre has all been staged is a New York Times report, they took satellite images of the area of Bucha over about a month or so, and it shows that the bodies have been lying in the streets of Bucha for weeks and that this massacre happened and bodies were laying there. The satellite images are real evidence of these war crimes and refutes the propaganda that's coming out of the Kremlin.
1: Also, NATO Secretary General Jens Stolenberg said, quote, targeting and murdering civilians is a war crime. All the facts must be established and all those responsible for these atrocities must be brought to justice, unquote. So in looking at this statement, how realistic is it that Putin and others alleged will ever face an international tribunal?
0: Well, I was able to speak to some um, international law experts and, and an expert who has written about targeting civilians in war basically as a strategy to break the will of the leaders. And I was told that, you know, it's surprisingly decentralized. Countries can basically put out an arrest warrant, let's say for Russian President Vladimir Putin, but of course, as long as he and other leaders stay in Russia, it's very hard to get actual access to them. Now, leaders we've seen this in the past can be tried in absentia, and that you know may at least have you know some sort of moral or symbolic significance. But it is difficult to get access, although moving very quickly these condemnations because there's just so much overwhelming evidence. And also I've spoken to genocide experts who say they are very careful to use the word genocide, but this does look like genocide. And they pointed out that genocide doesn't necessarily depend on the numbers of people killed, but it's the intention behind it which experts are saying is exactly what we are seeing with these deliberate attacks on civilians. And Secretary Blinken weighed in and on his way to Brussels and said, these are not the random acts of a rogue unit, but a deliberate campaign to kill, to torture, to rape, to commit atrocities.
2: There are some reports out of Germany saying that the the German government has intercepted some Russian communications. In which russian soldiers describe questioning ukrainian soldiers as well as ukrainian civilians and then shooting them and that is added to some of the evidence that is being gathered as we speak but actually prosecuting putin or any russian military leaders or soldiers on the ground will be a long and difficult road it will likely take years if not decades to bring a case to the International Criminal Court and have it heard and have it prosecuted. All that said, what we're seeing here is two 20th century philosophies at odds. The philosophy that war with Russia will bring on World War III and the use of nuclear weapons and the mutual destruction of countries and the people and the planet. And that is banging up against the philosophy of never again. Never again will the world stand by and watch the extermination of groups of people like we saw in Nazi Germany in the 30s and the 40s. So those two philosophies are working against one another. And the result is we're seeing the kind of atrocities and massacres of civilians on the ground in Ukraine, the likes we haven't seen in years. Although we've seen similar things in Syria and similar things in Iraq as ISIS tore its terrorist trail through the Middle East. So this is not new, but the question is, what is the world going to do to stand up to Putin? And that question still hasn't been really been answered.
1: Also, the EU and the U.S. are expected to announce further sanctions against Russia. Some of this is reportedly including the daughters of President Putin. So if this is true, then what will this mean for Putin's daughters, and how will it affect him?
2: I think the effect of those kind of sanctions on people and persons, especially those who are close to Putin, are aimed at trying to ratchet up the pressure on him. That said, the daughters of President Putin are— well taken care of by the russian government i'm not quite sure how much that will hurt both the putin family and russia at large the real nut here to crack is europe's dependent on russian energy and that is something both you know nato countries european union countries are really trying to figure out and figure out how to cut themselves off from russia energy and how to find affordable supplies to fill that breach.
0: Right, I would agree. And as you said, Kim, at the beginning, now the EU is saying that they're going to stop buying Russian coal. But Ukrainian leaders are saying what we really need is an embargo from Europe on gas and oil, which is much more difficult for them because they are so highly dependent on that but you have the Ukrainian foreign minister Kuleba saying look does it take a massacre like we are seeing in Bucha now is that what's necessary to shock countries into doing the right thing and, you know giving all this money for gas and oil to Russia every month And Kuleba is basically saying, you know, at this foreign minister's meeting in Brussels, what Ukraine needs right now in the face of all this atrocity, we need weapons, weapons and weapons. And he's like, okay, if you're saying, as Steve pointed out, you know, we don't want to interfere, get involved in this because it could be a third world war. He said our civilians are suffering. We will do the fighting, but at least provide us the weapons that we need so that, you know, we can take care of this, and that we can defeat Russia before this conflict goes into other
2: countries. As long as Europe continues to bring in a quarter of its crude oil from Russia and nearly 40 percent of its natural gas from Russia, Russia is going to continue to have the kind of financing needed to carry on this war.
1: Yes, you all have brought up some really good points with these energy sanctions within the EU. It's created a lot of tension. And just an example of what you all are talking about, Lithuania, one of Ukraine's staunchest allies in the bloc, said the proposals were not really an adequate response to the horrors being discovered in Ukrainian towns. However, Poland and the Baltic states have been calling for a total ban on Russian fossil fuel exports, while Germany, which gets 55 percent of its gas from Russia is concerned about unemployment and rocketing petrol prices. Austria is also seen as lukewarm on the plans. So you brought some really good points out on this issue. And how does something like this get resolved?
2: I think what you're seeing as far as the concern among European nations is if they ban Russian energy and prices go up, It's going to create political instability. It's going to create political problems for the leaders of those countries. And what we might see is an emergence of a more nationalist type of politics throughout Europe, and European leaders fear that may be even more of a problem for Europe than what's going on in Ukraine.
1: To add to this, Hungary's prime minister, Viktor Orban, who was congratulated by the Kremlin on his electoral victory, also opposes a ban on gas and oil. And in a blow to EU unity, he announced his country would have no difficulty in paying for Russian gas in rubles and will do so if Moscow asks. So, Cindy, can you tell us a little bit more about Hungary's ties with
0: Russia? Well, you're right. It's interesting how Mr. Orban sort of changed his tone a bit right after being re-elected in a landslide elections, where international observers say they were tilted towards his party. You know, they were not completely fair elections campaign regulations definitely favored him, media regulations favored Orban. So basically he has uh, consolidated his power. And now, as you said, we're seeing cracks in the unity. And he's saying he's completely fine with paying in rubles. And he's also uh, invited Putin for talks in Hungary, try to end the conflict. And Putin is already saying, oh, well, but there would be conditions I see some parallels with what's going on in Hungary with what's going on in the United States because Orban's party, you know, they're sort of much more popular in rural areas than they did better than in Budapest. And he's also using language about protecting Hungarians from migrants and protecting them from the United States and from Western liberals and from LGBTQ and things along very ideological and emotional language coming out of Orban.
1: Then another aspect of this, U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield introduced a proposal to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council. She said Russia's membership on the council hurts its credibility and, quote, undermines the entire U.N. and is just plain wrong, unquote. So what effect is this further isolating Russia from the international community going to have on the people of Russia?
2: That's a really good question and something that I'm not quite sure its effect on the people of Russia. We did hear from U.S. ambassador to the U.N. food program, Cindy McCain, on efforts to keep the Russians from taking control of the U.N. food program. They were next in line to run that program. So, There is an ongoing effort by the United States and other countries to keep Russia out of key positions in these international organizations, at least until the war in Ukraine can be solved and we can move on from that and figure out where the next course of this goes. But having Russia in key positions while a war is going on is something that, does not seem to calculate well as far as international organizations is concerned.
0: Right. I think, Kim, it would be more, again, of a moral victory and a hit to Russia's status, if you will. But you could argue with the images like we're seeing coming out of Bucha that the status is already in pretty bad trouble. But interestingly, the only time that this has happened before that a country has been expelled from the UN Human Rights Council was Libya, under Gaddafi, and uh, Libya is now back in. So these expulsions don't have to be permanent.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, former President Barack Obama speaks on his most significant piece of legislation during his presidency. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sain and VOA Executive Producer Steve Reddish. Well, former President Barack Obama made his first appearance at the White House since 2017, joining President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris on the Affordable Care Act. From the historical perspective, how significant is it from... Obama and Biden passing the law to Obama, returning to celebrate how it's grown and now being protected under President Biden?
2: It's significant politically. As you pointed out earlier, President Biden is suffering from a popularity loss in the last 18 months since he was elected president. We're now seven months almost to the day, to election day here in the United States, and The president is not doing well in the polls. His party is not doing well in the polls. So what do you do? You hug and get close to the most popular person in your party, and that is still former President Barack Obama. As well, health care is one of the Democrats' signature issues. Voters give Democrats high marks, perhaps the highest marks that they give Democrats on handling health care. So it makes political sense where you've got an entire House of Representatives up for election in seven months, and along with one-third of the U.S. Senate, along with thousands of other government offices on state and municipal levels, it makes sense, it makes political sense for Biden and the Democrats to move back to their signature issue the one that makes voters understand that, yes, Democrats look out for them, and that is in health care. So that's really why bringing Obama into the White House may spark some momentum for Democrats who are running for Congress and running for offices further down the ballot.
0: Right. I would agree, Kim. And then having covered Congress during this fight over the Affordable Care Act, Republicans then sort of scathingly called Obamacare. It's remarkable to me how things have turned around because this used to be such a divisive issue and Republicans used it to take back the House in 2010. And now things have turned around because Obamacare has become just like a permanent part of the fabric america americans rely on it like they do on social security or medicare health care for the elderly so i saw one poll where 66 percent of americans now have positive views of obamacare once something becomes a government program once people get used to it, taking it away is very difficult. And I think Republicans knew that. And that's why that they fought so hard against it. But as Steve said, it's now very popular. And seeing the images and then having a former President Obama joke about, oh hi, you know, Vice President Biden was a thing that, you know, is rallying for a lot of Democrats.
2: I noticed one of the local members of Congress from Virginia, a Democrat, who tweeted his occasional reminder To the public that Republicans voted against capping insulin prices at $35. Democrats have been successful in the past using health care as a way to win seats in Congress, so I would expect them to use health care as a cornerstone issue for the 2022 campaign.
1: Now to our final topic. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson is headed to the Supreme Court. Despite GOP opposition of the vote, South Carolina Republican Senator Tim Scott While noting the historic nature of the nominee, the first African-American woman headed to the court, he announced it is the ideology of President Joe Biden's nominee that is blocking his support. And he says, quote, from leaving the door open on court packing to her multiple overturned opinions, I cannot support a nominee with her record of judicial activism, unquote. So in looking at this, it's really no surprise that Senator Tim Scott made this statement. So, Steve, your thoughts on the outrage from the Democrats on his opposition, and was it warranted?
2: This is a political issue. When a president nominated someone from the Supreme Court, and I'm talking about going back 30, 40, 50 years, that the Senate routinely rubber-stamped the president's nominee to the court. Republicans, Democrats, no matter who nominated a Supreme Court member— they would usually get anywhere from 65 to 75 votes across the aisle, Republicans, Democrats, et cetera. Now, there's so much contentiousness by both Democrats and Republicans over recent nominees, the process has been politicized well beyond where it used to be. So where we are now in a 100-member Senate that is evenly divided 50-50, getting what is expected to be at least three Republicans who said that they will vote for Judge Jackson. That's a real win for Democrats in this highly polarized political atmosphere that we have. Her ascension to the court will not change the ideological bent of the nine-member court. It is six to three in favor of conservatives now. She is replacing one of the liberals, so it will remain six to three. But it does not surprise me that uh, Republican Tim Scott from South Carolina, the only African-American Republican member of the Senate. It does not surprise me that he will toe the party line and stay with Republicans, most of the Republicans, and vote against Judge Jackson, despite the fact that she is black, he is black. Party politics is now the definer of where you stand as far as where your vote is going to be.
0: Right, Kim. You know, at times it was very contentious, some nomination process, and with Republicans trying to portray her as being not tough enough on pedophile criminals and that sort of thing. But there again, polls taken since that process show that Ketanji Brown Jackson is probably the most popular Supreme Court nominee in decades, with one poll saying 66% of Americans overall approve of her and like her. So I think that most Americans, like what they saw she had a very calm demeanor and was obviously highly qualified for it. So she will be confirmed. And I think, as Steve said, the fact that she is getting three crossover votes from Republicans, that will mainly be important, I think, to President Biden, who is so much a sort of an old school that, like, wants to go across the aisle and work together. And I think that it will mean a lot to him that at least that she did get some Republican votes. Although I agree with Steve that that has changed completely. It's become a lot more partisan. And that's all the time we
1: have. So, have to end on that note. My thanks go to BOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and BOA Executive Producer Steve Reddish. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News.